The human body is 70% water. If you use 5% of your body's water, you will have a fever. If you lose 10%, you will not be able to move. Most people can live for a month without food, but less than a week without water. A mere 2% drop in, wa in body water can trigger fuzzy short-term memory and trouble with basic math. Water is essential for life. 1.2 billion people around the world lack access to clean drinking water. From Madison, Wisconsin, where citizens are troubled by recent reports of too much manganese in the water, to the Middle East, where wells and pipelines are often the first targets in war. Many millions of children die every day from waterborne diseases. One flush of an American toilet uses as much water as the average person in the developing world uses in a whole day of washing, drinking, cleaning, and cooking. I'm Jean Faraka. You're listening to Here on Earth, Radio Without Borders. This hour, water. Is it the next oil? How can we better manage and conserve our most precious resource? We're at 1-800-642-1234. Again, 1-800-642-1234. To join us from overseas, send your emails to hereonearth at WPR. Org. Joining us from California is Peter Glick. He is the president and co-founder of the Pacific Institute in Oakland. Dr. Glick is an internationally recognized water expert. In 2001, the BBC dubbed Glick a visionary on the environment. And in 2003, he was awarded with a MacArthur Fellowship, also known as a Genius Award. Peter Glick, it's an honor to have you with us. I'm happy to join you. Let's start with the local. We've had a lot of problems in recent weeks with our water in Madison. The Wisconsin State Journal recently featured a series of articles exposing serious problems with our water supply. Tap homes at several tap water at several homes in Madison is severely discolored from manganese, and it's been discovered that manganese uh, can uh, is related to liver disease and uh, neurological, dis neurological disorders. There's also presence of other contaminants in uh, the water from uh, some of the city's 24 wells, including carbon tetrachloride, which causes cancer. This happened a couple of years ago in Milwaukee uh, when cryptosporidium was the culprit. Are these isolated incidents, or is there some connection uh, between these problems that are local to us in a place where we have such an abundance of water. We are so blessed with the water. Is it related to the other problems that we see worldwide? Well, Gene, water is a, it's truly a global issue. There are a wide range of, as you said in your introduction, very serious unresolved problems around the world about access to water, water quality, conflicts over water, even climate change is going to be uh, a very significant factor in our water future. But ultimately, again, water is truly a local issue. We really care about what's going on with our local water resources. We want our uh, water from our taps to be high quality and reliable. Uh, we want to be sure that our government agencies are monitoring our water quality and protecting water quality, something that, that's really critical for us. And ironically, in the United States, we have, for the most part, incredibly high-quality tap water. Uh, we have very strict national standards to protect our water quality. Uh, our water agencies are supposed to monitor and enforce those water quality standards. And, and for the most part, the, the water that comes out of our taps is, is really good. Uh, but it isn't always really good. Sometimes there are problems we don't look for. Uh, sometimes we're not monitoring adequately. We're not checking adequately. Uh, and problems do arise, like, as, as you mentioned, the 1993 cryptosporidium problem in Milwaukee that, that led to quite significant changes in how we 
look at and protect our water resources. The, the local manganese problem is an example. I, I guess the bottom line there is it's important that we keep looking at what's in our water and that we, we keep uh, our water agencies on their toes in protecting that water quality. Well, it's been suggested that America will not accept resources being finite as long as optimism lives. Um, how can a sense of local crisis connect us with the real situation around the world and, and how we participate in it? Well, of course, water is a finite resource. It's a renewable resource. Nature brings more to us each year in the hydrologic cycle that we all learn about in elementary school. But the fact that it's renewable doesn't mean that it's infinite, and it doesn't mean that it can't be damaged or affected by human actions. Unfortunately, humans are pretty good at overusing resources, and we're pretty good at contaminating resources. And, and for water, overusing them and contaminating them are two of the things that we, we really have to be most careful about. Uh, unlike oil, which, uh, which, as you mentioned again at the beginning, is uh, an issue we all care about and it's big in the news right now, um, all, for oil, there are substitutes. For water, there are no substitutes. Can you imagine the wars of the 21st century being fought over water uh, rather than oil? Well, ironically, there's a long history of conflict over water resources. Uh, at, at the Pacific Institute, my, my institute, we actually keep a record going back thousands of years now of examples in myths and legends and history of conflicts over water, where water was used as a weapon, where water systems were targeted during wars that may have started for another reason. And I, I do think that the risk of conflicts over water is growing, not shrinking. Uh, I don't think we'll have wars, per se, over just water. Wars, of course, start for many reasons, religion and borders and politics and economics and resources. But I do think, increasingly, water is going to be a factor in conflicts if we don't get better about how we manage and use it. What are the suggestions that the Pacific Institute uh, is making uh, to reduce the possibility of conflict over water? Well, the first thing we have to do is we have to understand where water is limited and how water is shared. Uh, half of the land area of the planet is in what's called an international river basin. Rain falls, runs off in a river, and that river is shared by two or more nations. In the United States, we, we don't think about that too much because most of our rivers are within our own borders, although even here, the Colorado River is shared between the U.S. and Mexico, the Columbia between Canada and, and the U.S. The Great Lakes region is, of course, uh, an international watershed. We have to get better at uh, diplomatically discussing how to share those water resources. We have to have treaties over rivers. We have to figure out how to use water efficiently so that we're not wasting water that either somebody downstream may need uh, or somebody uh, upstream could uh, could share more effectively. There's been a lot of talk about the privatization of water resources. Uh, the Great Lakes, of course, is one of our greatest uh, uh, sources of water in this country, and it's been suggested that we sell it to par other parts of the country um, where water is scarce. Yes, I, I think uh, there are very serious concerns about water privatization. Uh, I do think there are appropriate roles for private companies in delivering water services, but ultimately water is a public good, and ultimately water is a monopoly service. Uh, you know, you only have one company with pipes. You can't have multiple competing systems delivering water. And for that reason, whether your water company is public or private, it has to be very carefully regulated by the government to protect the public interest, to make sure that water quality is protected, to make sure that the poor have access to water, to make sure that the price of water is fair and equitable. Uh, and so the desire to privatize as an answer to some of our global water problems is an answer, but it's one we'd be, we'd, if we were smart, we'd be really careful about implementing. What about bottled water? Yeah. Well, ironically, again, the U.S. Is a, is a place where, for the most part, our tap water is really high quality and incredibly cheap. We've spent billions of dollars nationwide building a system that, for the most part, delivers pretty good water, excellent water, out of our taps. Um, of course, there are some cases where we have to be better at it, and we have to improve it, as, as you may be experiencing right now. But tap water 
is is far cheaper uh, and often better monitored than bottled water. We pay $1,000 more for bottled water than we pay for tap water, something people don't think about very much. And, and bottled water isn't better regulated than tap water in terms of quality. The regulations are different. They're inconsistently applied. Um, you know, if, if people want to buy bottled water because it's really convenient, if, if they're really convinced that they don't like the taste of their tap water and they understand that they're paying a lot more for it, people should be able to buy bottled water. But we should do it with a full understanding of what's involved. Well, is it a false uh, security to think that if something's wrong with the tap water, I can always buy bottled water? Well, first of all, if something is wrong with the tap water, uh, I think it's Im- imperative that we ensure that we fix what's wrong with our tap water. I, I think it, there's nothing more basic than high-quality, reliable, inexpensive water from our taps that we can drink. And for the most part, that's what we have. And when we don't have it, we ought to insist on it. If there's a manganese problem in your tap water, it better be fixed. And I'm sure the water agencies are trying to fix it. Uh, that's the first line of defense. The answer is not, well, okay, we'll give up on our tap water and we'll buy bottled water. Uh, if, if we give up on our high-quality tap water, we're, we're making a big mistake, I think. The Pacific Institute is calling for something called a soft path for water as a yes. possible solution to the growing water crisis. Can you explain what that is? Sure. There are many parts to the water problem. There, there are lots of different pieces involved from, as again, you said in your introduction, to the fact that there are more than a billion people worldwide who don't have access to clean drinking water of any kind. Uh, Forty percent of the world's population don't have access to adequate, doesn't have access to adequate sanitation services. Two point five billion people. Um, for the most part, the twentieth-century solutions to those problems were to build large-scale centralized infrastructure, big dams, big aqueducts, major centralized treatment facilities, and that hard path, if you will, brought great benefits to many of us. But it also had some unexpected, unanticipated costs, damages to the environment, uh, and ultimately, at the end of the 20th century, the failure to meet basic human needs for everyone. We, we didn't solve all our problems with the hard path. And we believe that in the 21st century, the only way to solve our water problems, which are remain enormous worldwide, is to use infrastructure where it's necessary, to build big things where necessary, but to be better about... Uh, bringing communities into decisions about water, about proper economics, about bringing the environment back into the equation, uh, a whole series of things that are institutional rather than infrastructure. We're talking with Peter Glick. He is the president and co-founder of the Pacific Institute in Oakland, California, uh, and as such, an internationally recognized water expert. That's our subject this hour on Here on Earth, Radio Without Borders. I'm Jean Faraka. You can join us by calling 1-800-642-1234. Do you worry about the scarcity of water worldwide, about the quality of your local drinking water? Are you doing anything to conserve and share our precious resource? New ideas and fresh perspectives are daily fare on the Ideas Network. We look for guests from a wide range of viewpoints, so you won't just hear one side of an issue. Make up your own mind by following the talk all week long on the Ideas Network of Wisconsin Public Radio. Wisconsin Public Radio's Ideas Network is the work of a staff of experienced hosts and producers bringing you access to politicians, authors, professors, and other experts. Visit the Ideas staff who bring you balanced discussion every day at WPR.org. For centuries, the marshes covering thousands of square miles in southern Iraq were impenetrable and beyond the law. During the 1980s, they provided a hideout for deserters from the Iran-Iraq War. After the failed Shia uprising in 1991, rebels disappeared into the complex of waterways with the help of fellow Shia Marsh Arabs. 
Then, with brutal efficiency, Saddam laid siege to the marshlands. He built a series of canals, earthworks, and dams. He drained the water and reduced the Middle East's largest wetlands by 90 percent. Nearly a half million marsh Arabs lived here in 1950. Perhaps only 40,000 remain. No one sure of the numbers. The rest dispersed to cities and refugee camps. That's NPR's Ann Garrels reporting in 2004 on Iraq's wetlands and the people who live there. Our next guest has been working to reverse the damage done. He is Azam Alwash, the director of Eden Again, an international organization dedicated to restoring the Mesopotamian marshlands. Azam Alwash holds a Ph.D. in civil engineering from the University of Southern California, and he joins us from Jordan. Hi, Jean. Hello. It's very, very good to have you back with us. We talked with you almost a whole year ago. It was in August of last year uh, about your project. And I'm eager to know um, what kind of progress that you have you made. Oh, well, we're going to hear one of the uh, few good, good news stories from Iraq. Um, as we speak today, about 55% of the former marshes or the marshes that existed in 1972 are covered with water and reeds. We figure about 42, 40 to 42% of that, or actually of the overall uh, figure, is in a state of robust recovery. The rest is basically uh, seasonal recovery that, uh, that is going to disappear over the uh, hot summer months as the water evaporates, as there is no continuity. Um, but 40%, I mean, my goodness, what a difference the years make, eh? Uh, now, how incredible. have you accomplished that? Well... Actually, I would not take credit for any of it. Uh, all the areas that have been restored has been restored as a result of the direct action of the Marsh Arabs themselves. Nobody should fool you, fool you into taking credit for restoration. The restoration has happened as a result of the people directing the water back where it belongs. What our role has been was basically just suggesting modifications for the passage of water, increased quantities, uh, new breaches where, 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 where it's warranted to create the connectivity needed for biodiversity to, 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 to recover. Uh, we have been just uh, advisors more than doers, um, which was it's, it's really actually an incredible, an incredible thing. I mean, I thought when we, was, we, when we first moved back to Iraq that I had to fight a war of convincing the people that the marshes are something that should be, that should be restored. I didn't need to win that war. That war was already won. The people had uh, started breaking dikes even before Baghdad fell. I, I, I want to bring Peter Glick back into this conversation and, and ask you, Peter, to uh, to analyze uh, how how this uh, project could have been so successful in such a short time. I mean, it was uh, the Mesop the decimation of the Mesopotamian marshlands was uh, one of the world's greatest environmental disasters. Yes, absolutely. Uh, for, for your listeners who, who may not know, this is basically where the mighty Tigris and the Euphrates rivers come to come together. And it, it is, as you described, one of, was one of the world's wonderful ecosystems, as well as a hugely important, uh, as, as Dr. Awash knows, social and cultural asset that was very badly damaged by the, the Iraqi regime. And maybe uh, the, the best news is that the fact that it's coming back because of the actions of, of the local people and the international community to some extent is an indication of the robustness of the environment and the fact that we can damage the environment and especially aquatic ecosystems because of the way we use or abuse water. But there is hope that we can restore some of the things that we've done. And there are other restoration examples in different parts of the world that that should probably learn lessons from what's going on now in the Iraq marshes. Now, 40% of the former marshlands um, have been reflooded. That happened by mid-2004. And 40,000 people returned to the reflooded areas to resume their traditional lifestyles. I have an update for you, Gene. Okay. We have 90,000 people now. Wow. Uh, they're moving back into the area even though the services are not available. There's no electricity. There's no potable water. I mean, there's water plenty, but it's not clean water, you understand. Um, there are no services, no health, no health care, no, 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 no schools for the children. Uh, in one area I document, I have pictures of the area completely, completely empty in June of 2003. Today, as we speak, there's 150 family and over 6,000 water buffaloes. 
What are they doing for potable water? Aha. Well, uh, we're back to the old problem that the Marsh Arabs have always suffered from. Um, You know, they all have digestive system problems. Uh, They drink the water. The water varies in quality uh, seasonally. Uh, The marshes that have their source from the Tigris water are in a better shape uh, salinity-wise than the marshes that have their source from the Euphrates. You understand the Euphrates has been degraded in quality as well as quantity over the 90s as a result of 33 dams built in the head, on the headwaters of the, of the Euphrates in Turkey. So the quantity of water that's coming in is a lot less than it used to be, almost one-third that uh, the historic average. Uh, moreover, the salinity levels are at the Iraqi border uh, are is around 700 to 900 parts per million. Peter would know that that is way higher than the maximum levels allowed in the United States for potable water. Yes, right. people drink it, and by the time, by the way, by the time that water gets to the Euphrates, uh, to the to the marshes, it's around 1,200 to 1,500. Some areas we have measured as high as 1,800 parts per million. Salinity is a huge problem uh, for the people themselves, um, and and these are one of the uh, things that are we are working on on trying to resolve. Um, so this I, is I'm literally actually. Water, I'm water. by a conversation with Peter about, about the uh, availability of water in the United States versus uh, what it is in Iraq. Literally, literally, a co- the cost of a bottle of water is about three times the, co- the official cost of gasoline. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in the United States? Uh, in, in Iraq itself. Well, and in no, most places. In, uh, the, the cost of gasoline in Iraq, I mean, obviously, obviously it officially, officially supports it's about five cents a liter if, when you calculate it on the official price. And it's about, oh, 40 to 50 cents a small bottle. Um, so uh, it's, 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 it's definitely a problem that we're working on, um, on resolving for the future. I predict a Nobel Prize, Peace Prize for anybody who can invent a small little uh, device that uh, that can be solved for uh, for little that can desalinate water while uh, while filtering it. Um, that now, would be the greatest service for humanity. I, I remember uh, that you undertook this project because this particular part of the world um, meant so much to you. You you grew up there and you had very fond memories um, of going out into the marshes with your father. Yes. Uh, my father had the best wo- job in the world. Uh, his his uh, his workplace was was this uh, water uh, uh, water world, um, and and uh, my fondest memories. Uh, you know, my, you understand that my dad was was uh, the district engineer, which in southern Iraq is uh, well uh, more important than the king in Baghdad or the president in Baghdad because he decided which area gets water when. Mm. Um, and obviously, I was the son of the king. <laughs> So anyway, but so, so he was a very busy man. He never had him. Uh, the only time I had him for myself was was uh, riding around in those small wooden boats. And as it happens, he was an avid duck hunter. So he always found excuses to check out uh, remote areas uh, in the spring when when the ducks uh, migrated from uh, Siberia to North Africa or came to the marshes to rest and and and, and uh, 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 recreate. Uh, it is. I cannot describe it to you in words. Uh, you have to see it yourself. You, you know, you have to come back to the restored marshes, although they are not as good quality as the marshes in my memory, but they are still a wonderful, wonderful place to be, um, where, where there's no noise except, except the noise of flies and, 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 and frogs croaking. What can I tell you? Uh, when I go berserk with the madness of Baghdad, um, three hours uh, drive to the marshes, and you're in heaven. And insurgents aren't using it as a place to, uh, to hide out and reconnoiter? Not really, no. Uh, you understand that the biggest beneficiaries of the liberation of Iraq or the removal of Saddam's regime are the people of the South, the Shia Muslims and the, the Marsh Arabs. And uh, these people are returning the marshes not so that they can have a, a hiding place, but really a place to live from. What you have to understand is that the, the, the southern Iraq, the unemployment is over 60%. Um, and so the marshes provide uh, for the people a source of daily income from fishing. That's a problem, really, actually. You know, it's a blessing in, in the sense that it's uh, providing this protein uh, level to, to, to desperate people. But at the same time, uh, the people themselves are not allowing nature enough space to recover. Mm. Um, the fish is not growing in size. Um, the biodiversity figures that we're looking at are not as robust as it used to be in the 1970s when you compare the scientific data. Uh, yes, recovery is happening, but it's not as robust as, as it used to be. And, and so part of the solution is to try to give nature time 
more time to heal uh, by by allowing the people to make a living elsewhere or from you know in a sense I'm actually relieved only 90,000 people have come back out of, out of the original 350 to 500,000. Otherwise, uh, the the uh, the pressure on the resource would be too great. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, as it is right now, there are some areas that are completely depleted of uh, of of, uh, of fish. And one of the projects that we're sponsoring is uh, creation of five million f fingerlings of uh, the native uh, uh, fish to reintroduce. Uh, uh, we actually have done that now for two years um, with the in, with the University of Basra. Mm. Um, uh, you know, the, the, we have just come up with a plan for. In your introduction, you said that one of the most important things is to to manage uh, the water resources efficiently. As and I mentioned to you that. The hydro period of, of the Euphrates and the Tigris have been affected by dam building upstream, which really affects the uh, recovery, the, over, the overall or long-term recovery of the marshes, because the marshes need a pulse of fresh, wa fresh water in the spring, timed with the mountain melt or the mountain snow melt. Mm. And that is gone as a result of dam building, and now what we what we have is a steady trickle of water, uh, which is you know it's good, it, it's returning life, it's bringing reeds back, but but the whole evolution of the marshes. Uh, started around this this huge amount of water, 60 billion cubic meters coming in at the, to the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates, and creating this this area, flushing out the brackish water that is, that, that that accumulated from the evaporation from the year before, uh, and 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 it timed with the reefs coming out of, of dormancy, with the fish coming in to spawn, with with the birds migrating. It's a whole symphony of of of, of life that evolved around this pulse of fresh water coming in, and unfortunately, it no longer is. Uh, and the, obviously, the removal of dams is not a realistic solution, although... Let's go back to Peter for a minute, since he's also an engineer and knows a lot about the damage that dams can do. Um, Peter, I, I find this story, and especially um, Azam's uh, uh, exuberance uh, in having succeeded so so far, um, a very, a, a very almost an apocalyptic tale in a way, because this is the place where civilization itself began. Um, can we take any uh, any hope from from this story and apply it to the the problem worldwide? Would you well, say? I, I absolutely think we can. It is a very hopeful story. I, I do think a critical issue, as Azam points out, is that. The ultimate success of this kind of a project, or or a similar project in another part of the world, is the international nature of the project. It, they're they're very vulnerable in Iraq to what happens upstream in Turkey and Syria, where there are very large withdrawals of water and big new dams on the Euphrates River, especially, and there is no agreement between Turkey and Syria and Iraq, the three major. Uh, countries on the tributaries of the uh, of the Tigris and the Euphrates about how the water should be shared, and if Turkey doesn't agree to let more water down, ultimately I think the restoration of the marshes will be will be affected, uh, and we have similar examples elsewhere where the international nature of rivers is a political factor that affects social and environmental and cultural factors. Uh, uh, everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, because of the scarcity of water, the United Nations agreed in uh, 2003 to proclaim the years 2005 to, two, to 2015 as the international decade for action, water for life. Um, I'm wondering, uh, Azam, um, have you negotiated with Turkey at all? Obviously, I'm not a government entity, so I cannot negotiate uh, with, with, uh, with Turkey, but we have uh, started to put the, the pieces together to start the technical discu technical discussions between uh, between uh, civil engineers from uh, Iraq, Syria, Iran, and Turkey along uh, the lines of the Nile Delta uh, dialogue to to basically start sharing data. Um, and, and Peter is quite right. I mean, obviously, the ultimate solution for 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 the marshes is reaching an agreement. And and the good news is that we our models indicate that if we manage the water resources properly, we can recover up to 75 percent of the marshes with proper mar with proper management and without creating conflict with other usages uh, of the water. All we need is three billion cubic meters to achieve that. It's it's very much possible. And actually, nature is proving that for us without without having without us having to do much work. Now, uh, the long term solution, obviously. 
obviously it is reaching an agreement with Turkey. Um, the problem was that the previous regime has uh, had had uh, had uh, an untenable position, you know, and demanding the historic right of of, uh, of for the water being the first developer of the water resources. Obviously, Turkey wants to gain something out of the water. There are solutions for this. Um, uh, to, for example, uh, you know, Turkey is now wanting to join the European Union, and one of the one of the requirements is that they resolve outstanding issues, including specifically water. So now there is this whip, as it, as, as it were, that will bring Turkey to the table officially to try to resolve this issue. Iraq, on the same level, has to understand that it cannot demand unlimited water resources. They have to become more efficient in the usage of water. And we need to create a, a, a situation where we can reach a win-win situation. And what I'm preaching right now to government officials or anybody that listens, and I'm, I can tell you that actually the idea is tracking, uh, is that what we need to do is actually buy electricity from Turkey. Turkey, therefore, will be able to get income from its water resources. Iraq will get t- uh, electricity at a, at a cheaper rate, and as a byproduct, it will get water. You understand the reason is Iraq cannot be seen to be buying water. No government can pass such a treaty through the parliament and, and, and selling a historic right. So we need to move. We need to shift the discussion. We need to shift the discussion to 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 other other areas. And 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 I think and if we can reach that agreement, and by the way, dedicate a three billion. Uh, cubic meter release specific for the marshes in, 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 in the winter or in the early spring, then I'm the happiest man on earth. Hmm. Uh, Peter, replicable model here, um, could it possibly apply to uh, China and uh, in, in the problems that Southeast Asia uh, is having as a result of uh, polluted Chinese rivers um, and emptying in, into the south? Yes, in, in theory. Uh, the, the problems are very similar. China is an upstream nation. Turkey is an upstream nation. They tend to politically think, well, this is our water. We can do what we want with it, although international law doesn't necessarily agree with that. And in the end, what you have to have is you have to have an agreement. You have to have all of the parties sitting down. Uh, as Azam said, there's there are 10 countries that share the Nile, and there's a very, very open negotiation going on with the Nile Basin countries about how to share the water resources of the Nile. There are many examples of treaties over over international rivers where the kinds of issues we've talked about, the use of water, hydro generation, ecosystem restoration, are all rolled together and an agreement is reached. And I'm, I'm hopeful I'm hopeful we can re- achieve that on the Tigris and the Euphrates. I'm hopeful that China is willing to sit down with its downstream neighbors in, on, on a number of rivers for southern Asia, but they're difficult agreements to reach sometimes. Well, is this part of your vision for uh, water use and how it can be applied worldwide, Peter? Oh, yes. The soft path for water is a truly integrated idea for managing and planning and using water. In, in an international watershed, it means all of the international parties have to be part of the, the agreement, uh, and the institutions have to be international, and the public has to be involved. The people have to be involved in the decisions. You're listening to Here on Earth, Radio Without Borders. This hour we are talking about water. Is it the next oil? We've been hearing about some uh, solutions that uh, suggest that it doesn't have to be. What can be done to save the world's water? You can join us by calling 1-800-642-1234 or send your email messages to hereonearth at wpr.org. For new ideas and fresh perspectives, keep it right here on the Ideas Network. We look for the very best guests to talk about issues you care about, and we welcome calls from listeners like you. From where we've been to where we're headed, you'll hear all about it on the Ideas Network of Wisconsin Public Radio. WPR.org is a valuable resource for anyone who may wish to revisit a news story or a topic discussed by one of our hosts. Many of our talk shows and news stories presented on Wisconsin Public Radio are available to you through audio archiving. Visit WPR.org. Foreign, 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 beautiful. 
disturb me, beautiful rain. Oh, come, never come. Oh, come, never come. Oh, come to me, beautiful rain. Rain. Lord, let it rain. I can't stand the lie of a blue sky one more day. Can't you make that pitter-patter, sweet teardrop splatter against my window pane? Come on, bring down the sky. Let those clouds and me have a good cry. Let it rain. I'm reading from uh, a poem by Patricia Barber, uh, which is included in a beautiful book called Water Music. Uh, photographed and orchestrated by Marjorie Ryerson. Marjorie Ryerson is the director of the Water Music Project, an international collaboration of musicians, educators, and environmentalists involved in raving, raising awareness about the state of the world's water. And uh, she's the author of the book, Water Music. Proceeds from the book go to the United Nations Foundation to help provide clean drinking water to families around the globe. Marjorie Ryerson, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jean. I'm delighted to be with you. And hi, Peter and Azam. And uh, Marjorie, um, you have really come to dedicate your life's work <laughs> to, to water. Um, how did this come about? Jean, it was a process of just falling in love. I think I've been in love with water my whole life, but I'm in addition to being a professor, I am also an artist and a musician. And when it evolved in my life that I stopped doing lots of photography to earn money because I was working as a college professor and doing fine in buying my groceries, I started photographing water just unconsciously. And the more I did it, the more absorbed I became in the topic. And pretty soon I had thousands of water photos and I began having art shows and the book evolved from it and out of the book this larger global project has evolved and so it's it's quite captivating and i am i am so full of respect and honor for what peter and azam are doing and i'm coming at the same crisis and issue but through a visceral means through the arts mm -hmm. and uh tell us about the tours that you've organized uh the tours of musicians uh coming from 22 countries mm -hmm. uh that and you have this powerpoint uh performance that you've taken around the world that's right that's right well n not around the world yet but certainly to europe and many parts of the united states and it that has evolved from the fact that i i sought out i i really thought about who could talk about water for the text of the book. It has a hundred of my photos of water, but it needed a voice. And I just struggled with that. What is the global voice? Who can speak to the whole earth about water? And I realized that music is our universal language, and it's a critical part, as water is, it's a critical part of all cultures. And so I turned to musicians from around the world, and that's what's evolved the the concerts and the performances because there are 66 musicians of many different genres in this book and so for example when i did a performance in new orleans the international organization that had me as a guest on stage said please this is new orleans bring a blues musician and other places have wanted classical music i've done collaborative concerts with multitudes of musicians together mm -hmm. and this, this project has evolved into an educational initiative that is now working with local musicians well before we get to that um i, I have to remark on uh renee fleming's uh contribution uh, to your book mm -hmm. uh, where she uses um water as a metaphor for music that's right. She says, uh, water is the splashing brook of florid, majestic Mozart, cheerfully running melismas, the flow of a river, a long Straussian phrase seeming never to end, the majesty of the ocean, a chorus of untold voices which makes us seem small and our so sorrows trivial, the calming repetition of waves, a soft, mournful drone which slows time and breath. 
that's the, the the unity there that uh, she's created between the way she feels about music and water as a as a symbol for that um, is is quite beautiful. And water itself, it seems to me, is a perfect metaphor for unity because we flow together. That's right. And when I sought these musicians, I said to them, "This book will help the environment, and the project is its goal is to help raise awareness and." money to help water but what you write for this book should be a personal statement about the importance of water however it is you cherish or find significance in water do not write environmental protection essays we have lots of very valuable good scientific information coming out hitting the airwaves i want something personal from you so like renee fleming did they each wrote a personal thing some of them taj mahal wrote a story about when he was five years old uh, Russell Sherman wrote a connection between water and music that's similar in perspective to Renee Fleming's, but in a more kind of cosmic look at the kinds of environmental influences different composers had. Um, some people wrote poems like Patricia Barber's reflecting on some aspect of water. They all did their own, their own path. And the the new initiative that you've, you've launched mm -hmm. uh, has taken uh, this into the public schools in uh, in Vermont. That's right, and it's it is not something that I've ever intend to have just in Vermont. Its pilot is in Vermont, but once we have all the bugs out, we will be moving it across New England, and then if that's successful, then just offering the curriculum and the whole structure of the initiative. Well, how do you get uh, kids involved in this? What's what's your plan? We take children out to the environment with water, where there is water, running water, flowing water, with musicians and artists and environmentalists and scientists, and they both learn about water and they create art based on water. They create music, uh, perhaps creating instruments themselves made from water, as Tan Dun, the Chinese, great Chinese composer, has has done so admirably, and he actually wrote about his water symphony in the book. But these children will be creating works of art, works of music inspired by water, and learning about water in the process, about the physics of water, the biology of water, the threats to water, and the joy of water, the importance of it. But, you know, I want to make sure that the underlying foundation of what they do is connectedness and joy mm. so that they will hopefully establish a personal relationship with water mm -hmm. and much as uh, that it is something that they will protect like their best friend mm. much as uh, azam alwash uh had that very personal experience of mm -hmm. of water in his youth mm -hmm. in his boyhood and has taken that into uh adulthood uh as an activist uh striving to restore the mesopotamian marsh you know i would like to commission marjorie for a for a, a marsh symphony <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Let's talk. <laughs> so uh, here we have a scientist's um, uh, perspective on water. We have an activist and we have an artist. Um, Peter, what is the value of, of this kind of, uh, of enterprise, would you say? Do people really need to have that personal emotional connection with uh, the element of water in order to care, in order to become conscious of the preciousness of it um, as, as essential to life, uh, in order to, um, to, be, to feel connected to the women in Kenya who have to um, real, resort to dirty drinking water for their babies? Well, of course, we, we get involved in the things that we really care about. And there are, the truth is, there are very few things in this world that people care about more than they care about water. We all have had visceral, deep experience with, experiences of one kind or another with water because it is such, to some degree, the fundamental element. Um, I was in New Orleans at, at the conference that Marjorie talked about, and I, I was a speaker at this pretty academic conference, and I had the opportunity to see the performances that, that Marjorie had put together for the, the music project. And 
you just should have seen this room full of mostly white male engineers, frankly, <laughs> uh, and how it affected them. I mean, it, it really was a wonderful way to bring to their hearts, and, and all these are people who really care about water also, maybe from a practical engineering sense, but, but deep down, they also understand how water is tied to everything that we care about, the mm. environment and health and our economy and the, the flows of nature. Uh, it, it really is a wonderful meshing of all of the different aspects of water. We're at 1-800-642-1234. And Brian joins us uh, from La Crosse. Hello, Brian. Go ahead. Hello, yes. This is Brian, La Crosse, Wisconsin. And I heard you talking about water, and I happen to be walking over the Mississippi River on the Big Blue Bridge down here in La Crosse. Oh, wow. <laughs> there's boats and there's cars, so sorry about the noise. I'll try to muffle the phone. But there's so much water. I mean, this is Mississippi. It means, like, big water mm -hmm. in whatever Indian language that is. Um, but here's the thing. I was at the beach earlier, and I had to go pee. And I couldn't because the beach house is locked, Pettibone Beach. And I had to go find some chemical toilet to go pee in. And there's houseboats all up and down the river. And they dump their, their, their sewage tanks right into the river. And why not? I mean, everybody goes to the bathroom in the river. It all goes down to the same place. So, it, But it's illegal for me to do that. So I didn't. So I had to go in a chemical toilet instead of just going in the river. Mm-hmm. But um, so you're th there's that's an irony in a way. It's an irony. It's a thing. It's like this is the third. It's the Mississippi, the third largest river in the in the world. I think it goes Amazon, Nile, Mississippi, right? Peter? Uh, no, it's Nile is actually a relatively small river as as things go. But it's it's without a doubt one of the world's largest rivers. I think it's it probably. Is. I mean, the Amazon with all its tributaries. Amazon and the Congo and the Mississippi. It's a huge, huge thing. But but, I mean, but here yeah, I am standing. Oh, go ahead, Peter. Yeah, Brian, your your point is exactly right. We we value water so much, and yet we also treat it as a dumping point for our waste because it's a convenient way of getting our waste out of out of sight quickly. And of course, you know, it all goes to the same place. You say, and ironically, it's that's New Orleans downstream. Um, ultimately, if we don't treat or we don't take care of what we put into the river, we're going to have to deal with it again somewhere else. Uh, China is a good example of this, too, where they have 22% of the world's population, but only 7% of the world's water. And much of the water that they have, they can't use because they contaminate it. They don't properly protect it. Uh, they do dump everything into it. Uh, and that's coming back to haunt them, just as it came has come back to haunt us. Mm. We had a... Uh, Go ahead. On, on, on the issue of, of uh, using water as a sewage, open sewage, Iraq has forever used uh, the Tigris and Euphrates as an open sewage conduit to take to take the the stuff all over to the gulf but when the marshes were alive they acted as a biofilter uh -huh. to clean the water before it got into the gulf and in fact one of the arguments i present uh, to the gulf countries to support the restoration of the marshes that in fact the restoration of the marshes isn't their benefit because it's going to improve the health of the gulf by taking away by using the reeds to take away 95 percent of the of the of the uh uh, heavy metals and and and, and the, the biologic and matter. So, um, you know, wherever there's a problem, there's a potential solution. Mm -hmm. Peter. Yep. We have Robert joining us next from Vernon County, and thank you, Brian, for that call. And we have open lines as well. One eight hundred six four two one two three four. We're looking for solutions to these problems. Robert, go ahead. Okay. Hi. I'm just east of where Brian was on the Mississippi. I'm in Vernon County. And it's called the Driffels region, and we're blessed with uh, a, a lot of spring water. That's what we have on our land, and that's what we use for all of our household water. What I would like to have uh, a reaction from is we, what we're doing with our waste is we compost our waste, and that's compared to a, a conventional septic system. Mm -hmm. you, so rather than using water in a toilet? That's right. We don't use, uh, we have no flush. Uh-huh. We we have our waste dry, and then what we would would love to do is reapply it to the earth in a healthful way. So I, I would like the reaction from the guests. Okay, Peter. Uh, you know, in in the best way to do this. Well, you know, that's a, a another excellent question. Uh, one of the problems with dealing with human wastes is that we've we've sort of traditionally gone to a water system. We flush our toilets. And it's a great way to get rid of wastes, but it's also a great way to contaminate a huge amount of water. Mm. And there is a movement called eco-sanitation, uh, and the Swedes are very active in this, in which they're basically 
doing what Robert is suggesting. That is, they're doing uh, separation of liquids and solids, and they're doing composting of solids, and they're they're using those nutrients for uh, either fertilizer or for other kinds of soil restoration. Uh, there are ways of doing it, and I, I would look up eco-sanitation and, and uh, the systems that the Swedes have have uh, not pioneered, but but are, are putting a lot of emphasis in. So perhaps we'll we'll do another program on that. And thank you, Robert, very much for bringing that up. Um, uh, we've also been hearing about other parts of the world that use a different quality of water uh, in their toilets, so-called gray water. Mm-hmm. What's yes, that? Uh, now, actually, if I could just go back to Brian's first question, there there are there should be rules about houseboats. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure that those houseboats are legally allowed to dump their wastes into the Mississippi River, and if they are, that's certainly something again where uh, governments need to be involved in in regulating that kind of pollutant. Um, but the other the the other point is we do use potable water in the United States for watering our lawns and for flushing our toilets and for doing a lot of things that don't require very high quality potable water. We wash so, our cars with potable water. Yeah, I mean you know th- this is water we spend a lot of money collecting and treating to an incredibly high drinkable standard and delivering to our homes and then we use it for things that don't require potable water. Uh, and so this is a good example of where the soft path might be better at matching the quality of water we have with the quality of water we need and reducing our costs and our impacts on the environment. Does it matter when people exercise conservation uh, measures such as turning off the tap uh, when they're shaving or brushing their teeth or taking showers? I mean, does that, does that help anybody in any way? It, it does help. Even in places that are relatively water-rich, we never have enough water to waste. But I think the first thing to do is not to deprive ourselves of what we want, but to do the things that we want with less water. If you want to have a green lawn, even though they're not great ideas in my opinion, that's fine, but make sure you're not using too much water to do it. Mm -hmm. If you want to flush a toilet, use a 1.6 gallon per flush toilet, not a 6 gallon per flush toilet. And, And those efficiencies can really save a lot of water. Well, I want to thank all three of you for being with us this hour. Peter Gluck, Azam Alwash, and Marjorie Ryerson. You'll find links to the Pacific Institute, the Water Music Project, and the Eden Again Project when you visit hereonearth.org. Plus, you can post your thoughts at our web forum and subscribe to our podcast. For a copy of this program, call the radio store at 1-800-747-7444. Ask for program number 604K. Here on Earth is produced by Carmen Jackson, Joe Hartke, Lisa Boo, Steve Zelasnik, Gina Curler, Sarah Turner, and myself in cooperation with the Division of International Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm Jean Faraka.